Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're focusing on digital dalliances and interpersonal civility. Socializing in the 21st century, why it's become so complicated and what we can do about it. My first guest is Lovey Ajayi. Lovey Ajayi is an award-winning writer, pop culture critic. She is the comedic voice behind the popular blog awesomelylovey.com, which has caught the attention of the likes of Shonda Rhimes and Ava DuVernay for both her scandal recaps and social commentary. Lovey is also a digital strategist, noted speaker, and the executive director of The Red Pump Project, a national organization raising awareness about the impact of HIV AIDS on women and girls. Lovey was born in Nigeria and now lives in Chicago. Welcome, Lovey. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Let's 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 get busy with your book because you've got some wonderful topics that you are writing about and that we have all experienced. And I think that's what makes this such an interesting and fun read. Let's talk about something called the dinner scrooge, and we all know one. Oh, so the dinner scrooge, so group dinners are very painful, as you know, because anytime the bill comes, somehow somebody's always short. We always come up like $50, $60 short. And the dinner screw, I, I talked about how there's three types. And there's one, the person who orders everything on the menu. And then when the bill comes, they're like, we should all split the bill. Uh, no, I ordered a salad and you ordered eight drinks and five entrees. We're not splitting this bill. <laughs> there's also the person who somehow always leaves before they pay. They always forget to pay before they have to hustle away. And then there's a person who has to calculate their meal down to the penny. And they're like, that's what I'm going to pay and not much else. So, yeah. You know, what I find interesting about that, that, that dinner Scrooge is the calculator usually ends up being the bank. 
So that one person who's trying to figure out who owes what ends up being the financier for the shortfall. Do you experience that? Oh, absolutely. Because the person who actually volunteers to say, I'm going to figure out the bill, is typically the person who just wants to have everybody ready and set. So they're the fixer automatically. So then everyone leans on them to also fix the shortage of the bill. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about another interesting subject that racism is for a-holes. And we all know this, by the way, but you have got your own special twist on it. Absolutely. I think it's very important to talk about racism and what it looks like. And I really talk about how people always think it looks like, you know, a Klansman. But honestly, a lot of it is more insidious than that. Yeah. Yeah. And and certainly this country is being challenged to take a hard look at what we're putting out there in terms of how we relate to other cultures. And really, I think it's about taking a look in the mirror. You know, we're talking about judgment. And I think the certainly the outcome of the recent election is a reflection or a projection of the collective consciousness, which is frightening. Right. I mean, I feel like we all learned a lesson this last week in terms of really the country that we're living in. And a lot of people who kind of denied that we still had a problem of racism in this country now can no longer deny it because it's in your face. And you see that half the country high five somebody who ran a campaign that was based on hate. Yeah. I want to share a little story. I have a daughter who's in college and her best friend is of Latin African-American descent. And she was telling me that after the election, she had gone out with her her friend and some young men had accosted the girls and said that the president said it was okay to grope them. Oh, wow. And how did your. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, my daughter, who's got, you know, got that lippy voice from me, uh, just let these boys have it. And I just I was so proud of her. I said, you know, Kayla, you have got to start using that voice because up until now, she was very passive about politics. She wasn't interested. And this has gotten her fired up. So I say out of a bad thing, sometimes we are now being able to fire up the next generation of activists or people who use their voices and their intellect for the greater good. Absolutely. And I think it's really important for people to start using their voice, even when it's especially when it's difficult. I think now more than ever, people who are in a majority group of any sort, who have any type of privilege, have got to start using it for the betterment of marginalized people. Yeah, well, you know, that's what we've been taught. I mean, many of us have been taught that the more we have, the more social responsibility and obligation we have to do good and pay it forward. Right. But you'd be very surprised. And actually, this is why I'm judging us. You'd be very surprised about how many of us don't believe that, don't have the the sense of obligation for service. Yes. But, you know, I think that that comes from fear. You know, it's a very fear based mentality that if I am generous with my service, generous with my heart, generous with my time, that somehow it's going to diminish my power when, in fact, it's Mm -hmm. absolutely the opposite. Right. Absolutely. I I feel like we need to be to understand that the more we use our work for the betterment of somebody else, the better our work gets. Yeah. Let's talk about one of your favorite things, which is social media and why I want to talk about social media is because you have a piece or you've written about that your Facebook is my favorite soap opera. And I, I think this also touches upon the news ish value 
of social media. I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, I get my news from social media, including our president-elect, by the way, people. We, I mean, social it's media news-ish. is very important because it's the first thing, honestly, most people roll over and pick up their phones. So yeah. the first thing you're seeing in the morning is content from your feed. And that's why we end up being influenced by it. We end up being affected by it. So, yeah, it's a huge part, which is why I have a, I have a section in this book about social media. Yes, you have a quite a good one. I mean, you, some of the pieces are entitled, for example, hashtag, hashtag, number one, hashtag, hashtag, hate, hashtag, your hashtag, hashtag, abuse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hashtag, I hate your hashtag, abuse. I started that section with that specifically because of how much I hate it. You know, people using 47 hashtags in a picture and I'm just like, but why? I can't read it. It's like, OK, this is now another language and I need exactly. a translator. <laughs> The translator. And also, it's just like obnoxious to look at. Yeah. And what about dumbed down news? Because this is where I go into the newsish category, you know, where it's so simple that we're really missing the point of what's going on. I have a chapter on dumbed down news because I notice how social media, even though we have all this information at our fingertips, we somehow still don't do research and we're somehow still ill-informed. Yeah. What about for shame, get some e-behavior? Because this is something you really focus a lot on is that sort of ether etiquette. Oh, yes. E-behavior. It's like the people who randomly will flirt with you on LinkedIn. And just like of all places, it's like walking to a conference room at work and being like, hey, you want to go on a date? It's so inappropriate. (laughs) And I talk about how we use the selfie culture, people doing selfies at funerals. It is just like we've got to do better. Yeah. We've got to do better. We've got to be better. And this is really what your manual, what your book challenges us to do. These essays really are so beautifully provocative. Here's another one that I think is really important to talk about. Rape culture is real and it sucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from the example you just even used, I mean, the fact that our new president-elect was caught on camera talking about how he went to grab a woman by her nether regions. And and people will still swear up and down that, oh, no, rape culture is not a thing. Oh, you're just overreacting. We're not. Women are walking in the streets not feeling safe because men feel like they're entitled to our bodies. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Ladies and gentlemen, America is not one big locker room. Oh, my gosh. It's not. And even locker rooms are not one big locker room because after a certain age, you should know better than to say certain things. So the fact that we are living in a world that somebody can walk up to somebody else and say, Hey, our president said this is okay. I'm stunned by it. Well, and he didn't say it was okay. I mean, here's this sort of twisted logic of all of this. You know, I I think that we have a condition, certainly in this president elect, who basically saying, do as I say, not as I do, who's not living by the golden rules or the example of good conduct, of being a good citizen, a good doobie. Actions speak louder than words any day. So, yes, ma'am. You absolutely lead by example by what you do. So you can't say, hey, don't do what I'm doing. If you're doing it, you're saying it's okay for me to do it too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're going to need to go to a break. But before we do, I want to give a plug for the Red Pump Project. Tell us about the organization and the great work that you are doing with it. The Red Pump Project is a nonprofit that I co-founded seven years ago. And uh, 
it's we we raise awareness about the impact of HIV and AIDS on women and girls. And I started with a friend of mine because I find out that one of my friends had 20 cousins who were living with her grandmother because their parents passed from AIDS-related complications. And for me, it was one of those things I was like, wait a minute, AIDS is still a problem? I didn't know. I hadn't heard about this in a long time. And I started digging deep, and we wanted to really understand that a lot of women are living in silence and shame about it. And we don't want women to have to deal with the stigma. And also, we don't want women to become infected if they're not. So we do workshops around prevention, around education. And essentially, we are the safe space for people to know that, okay, you're not alone here, and we're listening. We're going to take that break, but before we do... I want to talk with you about Tata Tamers. It's no secret that bra shopping is a drag. There's always lots of trial and error, and even then, the perfect fit can be elusive. What if you could skip the trip to the mall and find the perfect bra in minutes? I'm a loyal third love customer who shops from the privacy and comfort of my own home. It's true, it's true. I wear third love bras because they fit like a dream. It all starts with Third Love's online Fit Finder quiz that helps identify your breast size and shape and then recommends the perfect bra style that's right for your body. Did you know that 50% of women fall between standard cup sizes? They're so obsessed with finding the perfect fit that Third Love invented half cup sizing. What I really love about Third Love is the comfort, fit guarantee, and rock star customer service. If something's not right, you can send it back. No hassle returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash happiness to find your perfect fitting bra and to receive 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash happiness for 15% off today. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are we happy yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Before we rejoin the show, I want to talk with you about the magic of storytelling and preserving memories. 
Everyone knows and loves a great storyteller. You know that relative or friend who always tells the best and most colorful stories about their wildly adventurous trips, their favorite hysterical college pranks, or meeting the love of their life? But here's the thing. We are all natural-born storytellers. It's in our DNA because it makes us feel more connected. Documenting and sharing our journeys with people we care about brings us closer together. And that's why I'm a subscriber to StoryWorth, the easiest and most creative way to share your story and pass on precious memories to your loved ones. Here's how it works. Purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week, StoryWorth will send an email with a question about their life. That's a year of weekly story prompts. Stories and photographs can also be uploaded at StoryWorth.com or via email. All stories are secure, confidential, and only shared with people you choose. At the end of the year, your loved one's story will be bound into a beautiful hardcover printed keepsake book. StoryWorth makes meaningful holiday, last minute, or anytime gifts. This season, I'm gifting my man a subscription to StoryWorth in hopes of learning more about his journey from New York City boy to an amazingly talented international architect. We've known each other for more than 30 years. Chris's life is rich with story, and I want to learn more about the roads he has traveled. And here's a great holiday perk for listeners of Harvesting Happiness. You will receive $20 off your subscription at storyworth.com slash happiness. Learn more about those you love at storyworth.com slash happiness and subscribe to give priceless gifts that will keep on giving. Once again, that's storyworth.com slash happiness. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we are talking about getting real, getting honest, the way we approach life, the way we engage in social media and the examples that each one of us are challenged to make every day. My guest is Lovey Ajayi. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. So Lovey, prior to the break, we were talking about the Red Pump Project, which is your nonprofit that is helping raise awareness about the impact of HIV and AIDS AIDS on women and girls. We were also talking about some of your essays, which make such fun commentary on life, just life. Let's talk about another one because there's one in the fame section about, so you're kind of a big deal on the internet because, you know, for those of us who are not in the know, and I'm just really seeing the internet sensations, I'm focusing my attention on what's going on on the internet. There is a whole other internet wood, right? It's not Hollywood, it's internet wood. (laughs) Yes, there, you know, because of social media being so big, of course, a lot of People have come up in the space and are now kind of celebrities in their own right. I mean, I'm somebody who's who's benefited from social media space, and so I definitely understand. And part of that I make fun of myself, too, is just how a lot of times people take it very seriously, their online fame, and I make fun of them for doing it. Yeah, we are not our social media personas. And at the end of the day, I mean, this is the dilemma that I see. At the end of the day... The people that are going to show up for us when life goes south and in crisis mode are not necessarily the ones that are out there, but the ones that are next to us. Yeah, I think it's also important to put it in perspective. It's to understand that you can absolutely 
build solid, genuine relationships online, but if the person who's your bestie is somebody who you know on Facebook and you don't even have their phone number, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. And that's an illusion, right? I mean, it's things are illusion. not what they seem. So my, I always talk about people taking what they're doing offline is from activism to friendships. You can start something online any day, but don't leave it online to where if somebody deleted your Facebook account, you'd be cut off from that person. A lot of us don't realize that how little we've really connected with people in real life until things like that happen where it's like, oh my gosh, this person deleted the Facebook account. I don't even know how to reach them now. That, and what about if there's a power outage? A power, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> then, we're really, then we're really alone in the dark. <laughs> exactly. You know, so it's like we have to start putting it in perspective and understanding what social media really is and how we can parse it out. So for some people, it's their entire lives. Everything is social. Everything from the moment they wake up to the end of the night. I mean, so it's one of those things that's like, what are we really doing? Yeah. And I love that you challenge us to think about it and act on it and, and, to, and to just do better with it. I've got an essay in part one under life that says, when Bayhood goes bad. Talk about that. Oh, goodness. When Bayhood Goes Bad is the essay I wrote about how sometimes we know people or sometimes we are those people who make horrific relationship decisions. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of times we date people who we should not date because they have certain skills. And we're like, oh, man, oh, we see it happen to one of our friends. And we're just like, OK, this is terrible. Yeah. But when we see when we notice there's a train wreck on the way. I mean, doesn't it doesn't obey like alert, alert, danger, obey danger, alert, danger. Hilarious. If you go to brunch and I see it happening, I can maybe comment. But, you know, some people are so deep in love or lust. They just know they, they're not going to receive it. Yeah, that's true. Those love lights are pretty powerful, huh? It is. <laughs> All right. Moving on to culture. I want to talk about nobody wins at the feminism Olympics. Love this title. My chapter on that really is talking about feminism, the word that comes with it, the baggage that comes with it, and why some people don't identify with it. And I do, in spite of all of those things. And I talk about really what has feminism done and how can it do better? Yeah. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing about feminism. And Certainly, women have come a long way, and that glass ceiling it is shattering very rapidly. But the reality of it is, many of us were never told that we were anything less. And so we're kind of scratching our heads like, what do you mean we can't? Yeah, I think it's really important to just, again, perspective is everything. Yeah. And I think that one thing that we don't do well is really prioritize what's important and what's not. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. You've got another essay in that same category. And here we go with those hashtags again. And this one is putting a big smile on my face. As a spiritual person, it's putting a smile on my face. Hashtag fix it, Jesus. Hashtag bind it, Buddha. Hashtag amend it, Allah. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> yes, that chapter on religion for me was probably one of my favorites, I would say, in terms of just helping me also work out a lot of my issues with religion. And I'm a lifelong Christian. I've been a Christian since I was born. I'm part of a family that's 
super spiritual. But we have to start admitting that a lot of things in Christianity, Christianity has done a lot of damage around the world, and organized religion in general has too. So this chapter, I explore that, and I talk about why even in spite of all that, I still consider myself a Christian, similarly to the whole feminism chapter. But yeah, I think it's really important to see that we're all connected. And even if you don't believe in a higher being, there feels like there's more than just us here. There's some energy that's directing our, our presence. Yeah. Two things come to mind or two words come to mind when you say that. It's like hashtag amen. We are all connected. Absolutely. And that is that is huge. Moving on back to social media, because here's another great essay. Real G's move in silence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm talking about the overshare world of ours. We, oh my goodness, like we know so much about the people we follow online that it's sometimes like, wow, I didn't even need to know that about you. And again, part of it comes down to people thinking Facebook is their therapist couch. <laughs> well, you know, for many it is. You know, I do see a lot of testimonials going on in Facebook. Uh, I mean, a lot. You know, people really doing some serious core dumping out there on the ethers. And maybe that but maybe that's their place. You know, it's they can leave it online and walk out into their lives. I mean, that's the flip side of it. I think there's value in sharing our world with each other. There definitely is that value. But it's like a thin line between overshare and vulnerability. Yeah. Well, speaking of vulnerability, this book has really catapulted you from the Internet and your fame and recognition that you have online and out there in the ethers to the public stage to those people that might not necessarily have ever discovered you. And how is that shift affecting you, the success of the book being a New York Times bestseller? One, I get less sleep because I've, I've been on the road since September 13th when my book dropped. But I don't, I'm not going to allow it to change who I am and change the work that I do. I've welcomed the love and the feedback that my book has gotten because it's definitely blown my expectations. But I also, again, I keep perspective and understanding that, okay, the work got me here. I got to keep doing the, the work now. Yeah. And I think that's the point uh, of everything that you write. You know, your epilogue in the book talks about do something that matters. And this is what I see that, that you are doing. You are taking your unique, sassy, moxie voice and doing something for the greater good. And I applaud you for that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, this is good work. And, you know, it's like these stories, these essays that Lavi Ajayi has written really are touching on the pulse of what's going on in America and, and around the world and issues that we wrangle with as women, as mothers, as wives, as partners, as professional people. And it's not just for the bays. It's for everybody about, you know, do better, be better, go out and do something that makes a difference. And I can't wait for more, Lovey, because I know that there's, there, there is a lot more of this inside of you. Thank you. Like people have already been asking me about book two. I'm like, Phew. all right, let's finish this tour first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got to be standing afterwards, right? Right. Yeah. But that's it's, what it's was an honor the... for people to even be asking about that. Well, you know, you've got it, girl. You've, you, you've got that sharp wit and your finger on the pulse that I think is maybe making people stand up and take notice. Um, we are nearly out of time. Um, but before we go... 
What's the one thing that you're going to do for yourself today to make yourself happy? You know what? I'm probably going to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Lovey Ajayi is going to get some Z's to make herself happy. I, I love that. I love that. Let me give you contact information out once again. The best website to reach you, Lovey, and all your endeavors is lovey.org. Is that true? Absolutely. It will lead you to everything else. To Oh, yeah. To lead you to the love. Lovey.org. On Twitter, that handle is at Lovey. And on Facebook, the page is Lovey. The book, once again, the New York Times bestseller, no less, is I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. My guest today has been Lovey Ajayi. And I want to give you a shout out of love, love, Lovey, because this is great work. Thank you so much for being with us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take that break. But before we do... I want to pause to remind everyone that holiday season is also marriage proposal season. Getting engaged used to be as simple as a question and a ring, but in today's super fast-paced world, getting hitched has become a complete logistical event planning challenge. And that's where Zola steps in by reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to make the happiest moments in couples' lives even happier. Zola is the wedding company that will do anything for love by combining compassionate customer care with all the modern tools and technology to help modern brides and grooms stay organized and loved ones in the celebratory loop. Zola takes the stress out of wedding planning and puts more fun in the process with free customizable wedding websites, creation of a dream wedding registry, affordable save the dates and invitations, and easy to use planning tools. Everything is conveniently managed online and all in one place. Get this, the registry actually lives on the website. Lovebirds can register with Zola Store, which has over 500 brands in it, from OXO and Cuisinart to Sonos and Airbnb. My cousin Kira planned her entire amazing wedding on Zola, keeping her guests automatically informed of the elaborate destination wedding schedule and constant registry updates. I love being able to click onto the couple's website and shop their entire registry in one convenient place. To start your free wedding website and also get $50 off your registry on Zola, go to Zola.com slash HH. That's Z-O-L-A dot com slash HH. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. 
Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Today we're talking about digital dalliances and interpersonal civility socializing in the 21st century. My next guest is Professor Russell Gallman, who is an assistant professor of behavioral economics and decision sciences in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. Professor Goldman combines economics, psychology, and mathematics to develop theories about why people make the choices they make. He is known for his behavioral decision research on the topic of belief-based utility and his behavioral game theory research on the topic of strategic decision-making in social interactions. His pioneering interdisciplinary research has been published in academic journals in economics, psychology, and decision-making. Russell, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Uh, this is great. We had a bit of a time finally scheduling our time due to natural disasters that have occurred in the state of California. Let's just jump right in and talk about what behavioral economists are focusing on right now, because economy and money go hand in hand. But your research is indicating there's something more. Yeah. I mean, behavioral economists are generally concerned with describing what people actually do in economic situations. And traditionally, economists have assumed that people sort of selfishly care about money and that's it. And I don't even think they ever really believed it. It just made the model simple. Um, but now there's lots of economists who are recognizing that people care about lots of other things. So they care about what kind of person they are, their identity. Uh, they care about following social norms. They care about whether other people like them. And they care about other people, too. So they're not always selfish, but, but they want other people to um, be well off, too. Um, sometimes they can even be spiteful, too. And you got to watch out for people like that. Well, I want to go back to the to the fourth thing you mentioned was about caring about other people, because I think that many of us look at the world that we live in today and think that we're in it for ourselves. Everybody is just looking at where they can get the upper advantage and really what you're saying is that you're seeing that there is this circling back to the tribe and taking care of one another. Yeah, certainly. And there's lots of research on the ways in which we care for, for other people. So there's a very simple game that's been studied academically. It's called the dictator game. It's called the dictator game because it's a game where only one person gets to gets to sort of make the decision for everybody. And that person gets to be called the dictator. And that dictator is just sort of handed a pile of money and is told, you know, split this up however you want among the groups. So sometimes it's just two people. So it's just you and somebody else. And uh, economists might have thought that if you give somebody a bunch of money, they'll just say, oh, thanks, I'll keep it. But lots of people, when they're given the money, they say, oh, I'm going to split it 50-50. It just seems like the fair thing to do. Talk about how you study behavioral economics. Like, talk a little bit about the ways you do your research, because you said the dictator game, but I'm sure there are more ways. Yeah, so research is... In behavioral economics, has both uh, theoretical and empirical components. So there's usually an interplay where somebody will run an experiment and you'll discover that people don't do the thing that economists traditionally thought they did, but they, they do something else. So economists traditionally would have thought people keep all this money, but they discover when they run this experiment is that they actually share it, some of the money that, that they care about, perhaps fairness. So then you discover something in an experiment. And then a lot of my research is on the theoretical side saying, how can we explain what people do? So we try to create a mathematical model where we make some assumptions about 
what people actually care about that tries to explain the results of the experiments. So you might assume that people care about how well off other people are, or you might assume that people also care about their responsibility for other people. So, you know, we, we do think that people care about other people as evidenced by this game. At the same time, we also see that, that people give some amount of money to charity, but certainly not 50% of their wealth to charity. So there's something different about giving 50% of this money that an experimenter hands you to somebody else in a game and actually giving 50% of your actual wealth to charity. And so people care about other people, but they also care about feeling like they're being fair to other people and not just sort of giving away all their money to charity. So what I do is I, I come up with theories that try to explain what people are thinking, what they care about when they make decisions. And then we do more experiments to try to test do the predictions of these theories actually actually come true. And how does decision making vary by age and gender? Um, there's lots of research on on variation by gender and, and certainly some research on variation with age also. It, it's hard to generalize. So I can talk about some specific examples. Um, I've got a colleague here, Linda Babcock, who's done a lot of research on uh, gender uh, influences on negotiation behavior. And one thing that she's found is that men are just more comfortable asking for for something in a negotiation than for women. So like men are more comfortable asking for a higher salary than, than women are. And at the same time, this is not just a gender difference, but this isn't part of social norms. So it's also that when men ask for something in a negotiation, they're viewed sort of positively as, you know, they're confident, they're seeking out what they deserve. Sometimes when women ask for the same things, they're viewed as being not as nice or, or not as, as friendly or something. It is a kind of double standard, but it's a, a hard thing to get around. So it's it's both there's a difference in maybe natural inclinations, but then there's also a difference in how men and women are expected to behave. And sometimes not following norms about how you're expected to behave can help. But in a lot of cases, you can get some kind of uh, social reprobation for that. And how does age play into the equation? I think age, it probably interacts with a lot of other things. So I mean, starting with, with children, children are still sort of learning what social norms are and you know, how they're supposed to behave. And, and then maybe it, by the same token, maybe they get a few exceptions. If they don't follow social norms, you can say, oh, that's just a child. They don't know any better. You reach a certain age and you're sort of expected to know the social norms. And, and if you don't follow social norms, um, that's viewed as like a conscious decision. So it, it's viewed as you're trying to to send a message by being different. And then you get to older age and there may be some differences in cognitive abilities where it can be you know, harder to remember things or harder to focus on a decision maybe. And what about right in the middle? Somebody who is, you know, in the middle of their career, they're, maybe their kids are on their way in in college. I know that a lot of our listeners are in that bracket. And I find myself being being one of those people that the older I get, the less I care so much about the social norms, not in terms of doing the right thing. Of course, I always want to do the right thing and I do want to be liked and cared about, et cetera. But I'm more apt to speak my mind and go against the stream with what's trending because it aligns with my beliefs. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you think about, you know, stereotypically, you think like teenagers are very concerned with what their peers think of them. And then, you know, I, I could speak about my grandma who doesn't seem to care at all about what, what people think of her anymore. She's just going to say what she thinks. How old's your grandma? She's 95 now. She's entitled yes, yes. <laughs> not to care. I'd also say that there's there's research that after some point in middle age, people generally report 
uh, higher levels of happiness as they get older. Yes, uh, the so, U-curve, so despite, right? That's the U-curve study. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So despite, you know, you might think that, that getting old has health problems or something, people are generally pretty happy as they get older. I don't know about all the causes, but I wouldn't be surprised if part of it is, you know, a comfort with the self and not being so concerned with what other people think about you that you can say what you think and that you can maybe distinguish what are called sort of injunctive norms where it's like this is like what you're supposed to do from the just kind of like the social norms that like these are just like things that everybody does but nobody's really going to care if, if you don't do it also so you know if you want to eat dessert before dinner nobody's gonna you know people may may judge something about that but nobody's gonna say you've harmed them right that's not an injunctive social norm that's just you'd be doing something a little different but if hey if it makes you happy <laughs> Then, then who's to stop you? Yeah, I, I definitely hear you. Talk about how we buy a little bit and maybe how that breaks down generationally. Like I know that I have young adults and they see something on TV or they see something in social media that sort of strikes their fancy. They immediately want to buy that thing, right? It really grabs them and their impulsivity. And maybe that's because their prefrontal cortexes are not completely developed. Their impulsivity sets in. And then for older people, they see something that might really interest them and, and a healthy mind might say, oh, you know, that's kind of a sexy object. I might like to have that thing, but they won't leap and buy. And when you're talking about sort of economics and marketing, how does that all work? I mean, there's a lot of research on what's called present bias, which is this idea that people are sort of overly focused on the present and neglect the future. And that is thought perhaps to relate to all kinds of like behaviors where people succumb to temptation. So it could be, you know, I buy something without thinking about, you know, is this going to going to stop me from spending on something that's more important in the future? Or it could be, you know, people maybe overeating, um, even though they'd really like to think about their diet and, and be healthier in the future. So in the moment, the, the temptation is just hard to resist. And economists have sort of traditionally thought of this kind of impulsivity as, as being related to just how much people care about the present versus the future. But I think there's now some behavioral economists who are thinking that there's also a strong element of just how real the present feels compared to the future. And so when something is right there in front of you and it's real, it can be awfully tempting. And if you could just sort of get yourself out of that hot state and into sort of like a, a different kind of mental state where you're able to just reflect a little bit more dispassionately. Um, you might very quickly feel feel differently. The um, hot so state. I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've got a, a colleague here, George Lowenstein, who's written a lot about this hot cold empathy gap. And it's like when you're in this hot state, you find it sort of very hard to remember what it was like to be sort of cool and collected. And by the same token, when you're sort of cool and collected, it's very hard to imagine what it's like to be facing temptation right there and and dealing with something that, you know, is very exciting or that evokes some other kind of emotion. Let's talk for a second about how that trends along with civility or the lack of it. You know, we see a lot of what's going on in the media, in the political climate, even in a rise of hate crimes. How does this all tap into what you're researching? Well, I'm, I'm very interested in how people decide to treat each other. It's hard to understand what's what's going through someone's head when they when they do something like a hate crime. I, I think even in kind of more ordinary incivility, I mean, even even we have politicians who will say things that other people find offensive or, or find hateful. 
it's hard to know in some cases why somebody is going to disregard other people's emotions. It, when you look at it's happening in politics, I think part of it is that there are actually some some rewards for making certain groups appear to be outsiders. Um, and it's a way of sort of targeting a particular kind of voter and saying, you know, I'm one of you. I'm not one of this other group. Yeah. But but when you get to something like hate crimes, it really seems like it's hard to see you know what a benefit is to doing something like this. So, you know, economists were usually thinking, like, if somebody does something, it must have been to maximize their utility. Um, it must have been that they had some reason to do it, some goal they were striving for. And in situations like this, it's like you can try to tell a story about they thought that that they were standing up for for people like them or something. And they had this view that the world is very zero sum. But I think it becomes hard to really understand what, what goes through someone's head when they do something like that. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Professor Russell Goleman to learn more about the research that Russell's doing at Carnegie Mellon University. There is a huge, long website link. I'm just going to ask you to go to www.cmu.edu. That's Carnegie Mellon University.edu and look for Russell Goleman, G-O-L-M-A-N. And you'll find the work that he is doing there, all about the research. We're going to take that break, and we will be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. And other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when... Or, I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money? Enough time? Enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about something that we all need to be more aware of, and that is our digital dalliances and interpersonal civility, socializing in the 21st century. Let's continue the conversation with Professor Russell Gallman. So prior to the break, we were talking about a bunch of different things, talking about how we make our decisions based on identity, following social norms, whether wanting people to like us, and about caring for others. So, Russell, let's talk a little bit about these horrific events that have happened on both coasts recently. You are in Pennsylvania, 
You had mass shootings there. I'm in California. We had within a few days, I think it was a mere type of incident here. Then we had these horrendous fires here, which we were in the midst of. And you and I have both kind of made some observations. And I want to hear yours because you're the professional. Yeah, well, I mean, this is just sort of an ordinary observation, nothing required a lot of expertise. But I'm here in Pittsburgh, just maybe about a mile away from from where the shooting took place here. And the community really did come together afterwards. And so we've got, you know, just lots of people who have been leaving flowers by the synagogue where the shooting occurred. Lots of people sort of expressing sympathy, just sort of saying, you know, do you know anybody who was hurt? And everybody knows somebody who knew somebody. So in our Carnegie Mellon community, one of the victims was the the wife of a former professor here. And it's just one person who can, you know, cause so much hurt and, and damage. But then it's a whole community that really comes together and, and does express with their words and their actions too how much they care about each other here. And it's the Pittsburgh community is really a, a wonderful place to live. It's a really nice community where people do care about each other. And I'm seeing the same thing here. You know, we're separated by nearly 3,000 miles. And Malibu, which suffered the fires in the Thousand Oaks area, it's a a generally an affluent area and people are pretty independent going about their day. And some might say that even though there's a bit of entitlement, it still is, is a community. And after both of these tragedies, People really rallied and their money went where their mouths were and people were, you know, sending resources in. It was about paying for someone's meal if you saw that they didn't have a lot or they were displaced from the fires or affected by the shootings. So there really was this coming together. And for me, from my view, it taps into, you know, post-traumatic growth when you're able to take a, a terrible situation and be positively transformed by it. Yeah, obviously, everyone wishes that there's something more they could do to prevent this from happening. But just having that kind of social support, I think, means a lot to people. Um, it's just much easier to get through difficult times when, when you know that there are other people who care about you and, and who want to help. It's been very comforting here. I mean, I'm we have not been affected directly. We haven't been living in the fires. And thank goodness we were not in the midst of the shootings. But within a 10 mile radius, both of those things occurred. And the communities are devastated. In the case of fire, it's quite apocalyptic, right? People have lost everything, their homes, their baby photos, their memorabilia, the things that actually do matter in making up one's identity. Yeah. Prior to the break, I mentioned that you don't have social media. And I don't mean that you're living in a cave and not connected to the outside world. I want to make that very clear. (laughs) I I, I do spend a lot of my time on the Internet. I'll admit that. Yeah. But there's a, a conscious decision. And I think that is trending amongst many of us to be more judicious in the use of social media. Yeah. And I think there's two dimensions of this. So I think one that a lot of people are beginning to think about is this issue of like, what do you post to social media? And that when you post something on social media, it's going to sort of be there permanently. And do you want to be concerned with, with this like image that you're creating that is going to be hard to get rid of? There's a lot of work on sort of privacy preferences. I think as an economist, you might say people's behavior sort of reflects their preferences and people seem awfully comfortable just putting themselves out there and not being so concerned with privacy preferences. And I think to me, it's it's not privacy preferences that keep me wary of social media. I'm, I'm fine if other people know something about me. It's actually the flip side, which is that I find it 
to be a maybe uncomfortable temptation to be sort of reading about what the, my sort of weak acquaintances are doing in messages that weren't intended specifically for me. So I've often known friends who will get very caught up in, say, reading about what their exes are doing on Facebook. And it just seems like a very unhealthy kind of habit. It's natural to have this kind of social curiosity about people who you've once cared about. And for that matter, to have the same kind of social curiosity about people who you've just met and don't know much about yet. But I'd rather sort of get to know people in a more sort of direct personal conversation. And so I certainly am comfortable with using social media in, you know, one-to-one communication. It's the the one-to-many communication that, that I feel like I want messages that are meant for me and I want to customize what I'm telling to my audience. So I'm going to tell different things to my best childhood friend than I just want to tell for to anybody who just happened to just meet me. Yeah, I think it's something that many of us are questioning. You know, when social media first started, and don't forget, like I'm an old person. I'm a mother of young adult children. So I was much more active because it was such a shiny new object. It was so curious to be able to hook up with people and hook up in the grown up sense, not not the other sense um, <laughs> that I hadn't seen in, you know, 20 or 30 years. I mean, that was just amazing. And then it got to the place where it had the ability to take one away from one's presence. So rather than connect, it was a time sucker. Yeah. I mean, I, I have little kids and I'll, I'll take them to the library or something. And, you know, looking around at some of the other parents there at the library, it's very easy to get sucked into the phone. I mean, I'll, I'll do it myself, too. I, I won't deny that. You do lose something when you're not present with your kids, with your friends, with your husband or wife. The ability to, to connect to people who you no longer live in the same neighborhood with is tremendously valuable. But you certainly want to make sure that you're connecting with the people that you are living with also. Agreed. I wanted to also go back to about the hot mind and impulsivity, because we talked about that in the the previous segment. And it also dawned on me that a lot of young people today, because I work with a lot of young people in my practice, I see a lot of hopelessness, you know, that there's not the same value of the future as there once was. Hmm. I don't know if I've seen as much of that. I wonder if that's in part when you're dealing with with people who are trying to deal with the the traumatic stress. Um, I think that's a natural reaction. But I think as a whole, the young generation does seem, I think, quite confident in their ability to create change in the world. Ah. In some sense, I, I think we're living in one of the most prosperous times ever. So so I don't think there's anything to be hopeless about right now. I agree. and But I think you hit the nail on the head that, that we're in one of the most hopeful times to create change. But I think for some young people, the hopelessness comes from seeing their parents and their grandparents who have been very prosperous and then perhaps viewing that they could never get there, that the economy is in such a place that they could never attain the comforts that they've become used to on their own. Yeah. And certainly, I think in reality, like economic mobility is actually quite difficult. I, so part of it is, I think, the overall level of like economic production, like the amount of goods that you can buy at the store at affordable prices. It's I think we're doing quite well in that regard. But in the sense of like a, a more relative, like a social mobility on an economic basis, I think there's actually very, very little ability for people who grow up poor to make it and and really become wealthy. I think there's maybe other dimensions of happiness that we have a lot of equality on. So I don't think happiness is just about wealth, but 
but certainly just being able to feel like you have economic opportunity is an important ingredient in, in happiness. I agree. Well, we, we know that money can only buy a certain level of happiness, right? That it's really about the basic basic needs and feeling that one has a secure base. And yeah, beyond yeah, that, a, right. right, the billionaire is not a billion times more happy than the average Joe. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it doesn't it's, work it's, like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you, you might say that, that money doesn't buy happiness, but, uh, you know, an absence of money could create some unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is so much material here and I want to I want to hang out more and talk about it. So maybe you'll just come back and we'll do more. But the bottom line is, you know, that actions do speak louder than words. And we're talking about, you know, how we behave and how it relates to our not only our happiness, but our collective welfare. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up this idea that, that actions speak louder to words. It comes back to, to what we were saying before about knowing that, that other people care about you and you know, showing that you care about other people. And, and really, I think it's, it's more than just what you say, but it's, it's what you do. You know, I, I think one idea here is that maybe we're sometimes very concerned about how other people are viewing us and maybe so much to the fault that, you know, when, when you get to be my grandmother's age, you can just say what you want and feel good about it. But the flip side is that it's natural to care about social relationships and they do make us happy. And so to the extent that you can show other people that you care, you actually can contribute to their happiness. And so we're sort of always going around judging other people because it's sort of a natural way to decide who is it that we're going to care about. Like you don't have time for everybody. So, so you're naturally trying to figure out who are the people in your life that matter to you. And in general, they're not what's living out there in the ether, you know, on the internet. It's really about the people that are next door and dear to your heart. And that's what it's all about, you know, it's the connection. And in my view, in my experience, you know, that at the end of the day, that is that thing. And when people talk about identity and how we want to be known or how we want to be remembered, I think showing up scores the highest mark. Yeah, there's a lot that can be transmitted in person, certainly, you know, just like simply sharing an experience with somebody, simply looking into their eyes and sort of knowing that you're there for them, that, that can matter a great deal for happiness. Well, I think that's currency unto itself, the most yep. precious kind. To learn more about the research of Professor Russell Goldman, please head over to Carnegie Mellon. That's C-M-U dot E-D-U. And in the search bar, put Russell hyphen Goldman and you'll get to his work. Thank you so much, Russell. I so appreciate you hanging out with me. Yeah, this has been fun. We'll do it again. Great. Take care. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa cypress Kamen and my guests today, Lavi Ajayi and Professor Russell Goldman, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TogiNet, 
iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.